Good morning. Good morning. It's a privilege to be opening the Word of God with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Rodney Evans, and I'm a member here at Christ Church of Westchester. Uh, the text we'll be in this morning is Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. It can be found on page 830 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible to call your own and you're visiting with us, please feel free to take that one. That's a gift from our church to you. Um, I will now read the passage, pray, and we'll begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you this morning. Pour out your spirit, we pray. Give us understanding of your word. Open our eyes if they're closed. Wake us up if we're asleep. Lord, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, that your word would go forth faithfully. In Christ's holy name, amen. amen. On July 25th, 1961, in the heat of the Cold War, when a nuclear attack on the United States seemed very possible and imminent, President John F. Kennedy addressed the American people by television and by radio with the following words. He said, In the event of an attack, the lives of those families which are not hit in a nuclear blast and fire can still be saved. If they can be warned to take shelter and if that shelter is available, we owe that kind of insurance to our families and to our country. In contrast to our friends in Europe, the need for this kind of protection is new to our shores. But the time to start is now. In the coming months, I hope to let every citizen know what steps he can take without delay to protect his family in case of attack. I know that you will want to do no less. According to a Politico article by Andrew Glad, it was right after these remarks that Congress voted for $169 million to locate, mark, and stock nuclear fallout shelters in public and private buildings all throughout the country. A year later, with the advent of the Cuban Missile Crisis, many Americans prepared for nuclear war 
with hoarding canned goods and completing last-minute work on their backyard nuclear bunkers. However, as we all know, nothing ever happened. The Cold War came to an end in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Still, it's not impossible for the United States to perhaps be surprised by a nuclear attack at some point in the future, but none of us really expect that to happen, right? Not, not in our lifetime, at least. Now, at the same time, nuclear weapons still exist, and so does the hostility between nations that have those weapons. But we still don't expect it to happen. So just think. Think of how powerful an expectation can be. The entire nation expected the possibility of nuclear attack, which led to the government-authorized construction of massive nuclear bunkers all over the country and everyday citizens investing massive amounts of money into building bunkers in their backyards. Expectations shape our behavior as we prepare for what we expect to happen. We expect to retire, so we save. We expect for winter to come, so we purchase homes with fireplaces and indoor heating, even if that purchase is in the summer. We might expect for cookies that we're baking to bake for 10 minutes and not 30 seconds. So we end up leaving the kitchen rather than waiting there with our hand on the oven handle. These are just examples of how our expectations for when something will happen shape or prepare, uh, shape how we will prepare for that thing to happen. However, how do we prepare for something that will happen unexpectedly? How can you plan for something when you don't know when it will happen? Well, the passage we're looking at this morning actually addresses this issue. Since Jesus is describing his second coming in exactly this way, that is, as an event that will happen at a time when we do not expect it. No one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. And it is for this reason that Jesus exhorts his followers to be prepared at all times, because it will be delayed and unexpected when he comes. We're going to see that this is actually the central point of the parable, that because Christ's return will be delayed and unexpected, his followers need to be prepared at all times to meet him. And so this is my central exhortation to everyone here and to everyone who hears this sermon. Jesus, the son of the living God, the risen king of the universe, will return in glory and power. And he will do this when you are not expecting it to happen. Therefore, do not delay your preparations to meet him. Be ready at all times so that you might escape his wrath and enter his kingdom. This warning and exhortation is why Jesus gave this parable. And so there are two points that I hope to make clear this morning from the parable. First, Christ's return will be delayed and unexpected. And second, therefore, always be prepared to meet him. All right, so point one Christ's return will be delayed and unexpected. Point two, always be prepared to meet him. I pray these two points become clear as we look at Jesus' parable, which is meant to illustrate this and drive it home. Now, before we can understand the passage, it's important we look at the context in Matthew so that we can see why Matthew included this parable and this location 
in particular. Now, this parable is actually embedded in a longer discourse or sermon of sorts by Jesus himself, which he gives to his disciples after they ask him a series of questions while he's on the sermon, while he's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, this is found in Matthew 24, 3, so in the chapter before the one we're in right now. And in verse 3, uh, the disciples asked questions which were actually sparked by comments that Jesus made concerning the temple in Matthew 20, and uh, verse 1 of chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read the first three verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But, as he, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So in this passage, Jesus is leaving the temple, right? But why was he leaving the temple? What was he doing in the temple to begin with? Well, this section of Matthew is describing the last week of Jesus' life, which we are celebrating this week, a week which Christians call Holy Week. The week began when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as he was greeted by many crowns hailing him as the Messiah. The next day, on Monday, which will be tomorrow as we celebrate it, Jesus entered the Jewish temple and angrily cleared it of the money changers. And then on Tuesday, he returned to the temple and confronted the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees, for their hypocrisy and their murderous rejection of him as the Messiah. This is also the day when Judas secretly negotiated to betray Jesus. Now, it was, this is the context in which Jesus is leaving the temple on Tuesday. It was after these events that he left, and while he's leaving, the disciples uh, start kind of pretty, in a tone-deaf way, complimenting the temple, uh, saying how beautiful the buildings are. But think of, think of the significance of this. God the Son enters his own temple in the flesh, and he's rejected by the leaders of the temple. So Jesus' departure from the temple is therefore a departure of judgment. He has forsaken the temple because the leaders of the temple have forsaken him. The temple was never needed by God. It's not his home that he needs to live in. It was a gift to the Jews so that God could mediate his presence and his blessing to them through it. And so Christ, God in the flesh, leaves the temple. He rejects them and the temple because they rejected him. And when he leaves the temple, it is then when he predicts the destruction of the temple, which would eventually happen in 70 AD. However, when Jesus gives this prophecy about the destruction of the temple, his disciples are intrigued. And so they go to him on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday and ask him when this will happen and what the signs will be before it happens. Now, they also mention the end of the age as synonymous or associated with the destruction of the temple, probably because the destruction of the temple for them would have been like the end of the world. Um, even so, Jesus responds to their question in reverse order in, in chapter 24. He first speaks of the signs of the end of the world, and then he speaks 
of the timing of the end of the world. Now, I do not have time in this sermon to fully cover the meaning of Matthew chapter 24 and everything that Jesus is saying concerning the signs. Um, But I do want to leave you with a few points that will help us understand our parable in chapter 25 contextually. So first point, Jesus says in verses 3 through 14 that the signs of his second coming will include global war, natural disaster, a rise in deception, persecution, and universal gospel proclamation. Now, all these things have happened to varying degrees over the past 2,000 years, but Christ describes these signs occurring like birth pains. They will repeat themselves with increasing intensity until the very end when he returns in glory. In my view, the thorough destruction of the Jewish temple, which occurred in 70 AD, was a particular fulfillment of this prophecy, but does not fully exhaust the prophecy. Since Jesus hasn't returned yet, and other aspects of the verses, uh, in verses 15 through 28, other aspects of those verses haven't yet happened fully, in my view. Even so, nevertheless, the events of that time in 70 AD, when the Roman uh, emperor sent uh, Titus to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple, the, sec- the glorious temple that the disciples were complimenting, those events do uh, describe and can be characterized as God's judgment on unbelieving Israel, and they, in a sense, prophetically foreshadow God's judgment on the unbelieving world at the end of time. Overall, then, Jesus gives these signs to indicate uh, when his coming is near, but not to help us determine exactly when it will happen. Therefore, in verses 36 uh, of, of chapter 24, Jesus shifts to speaking about the timing of his coming, which answers the first question of the disciples, when will these things be? So he speaks of the signs of his coming, he gives the signs, and then he addresses, okay, when will this happen? But his answer is maybe surprising. He says, oh, no one knows, not even the Son of Man knows, when, I'm, uh, when I will return. This means that Jesus described the signs of his coming not to help us determine exactly when it will happen, but to confirm that it will happen um, because everything that he predicted is obviously coming to pass. Still, even though we see these signs and may continue to see them, we should not think that we can ever determine when exactly Jesus will return. And so Jesus, therefore, finishes his sermon with various illustrations, including three major illustrations, that encourage his followers to be prepared for his delayed and unexpected return. This includes the parable of the virgins, which is our parable today, as well as the parable of the talents, which follows this parable, and the sheep and goat judgment that ends Jesus' entire sermon. And so at this point in the text, Jesus, as the master storyteller and loving teacher, gives this parable to encourage and exhort all of his disciples, past, present, and future, to be prepared for his certain coming at the end of the age, since it will be delayed and unexpected. So let's look at the parable now. Now, a parable can be described as a simple story or saying that is used to illustrate a spiritual truth, a particular lesson or a particular point. But before we begin to interpret the parable and discern the lesson that it might be trying to teach us, we have to first understand the facts of the story, right? The story itself. So let's turn to that now. 
Look at me with verses one through four, at verses one through four of chapter 24, uh, chapter 25. We're going to kind of survey the parable, look at some of the details. We need some social historical context since weddings of that time are not necessarily the same as weddings of this time. Um, and so for us to understand what Jesus is trying to say, we're going to need to figure out what is happening in this story, what is happening in this parable. Okay, verses one through four. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now here, Jesus begins by speaking of the kingdom of heaven, right? He says the kingdom of heaven will be like, and then he tells the story. This term refers to the kingdom over which he himself will rule as king when he returns. While that kingdom has been inaugurated at his ascension, it has not yet been consummated or fully manifested, and this is why we continue to pray to the Father, your kingdom come, right? So Jesus is king, but we still pray your kingdom come because the fullness of the kingdom of heaven has not yet been manifested on earth as we desire it to. Now, we're going to get uh, to, des- we're going to describe more about that, what that means. Um, but for now, um, let's understand that this parable is about that kingdom, and more particularly, how that kingdom will be established and who will reside in it. Next, Christ describes ten virgins, right, who take their lamps to meet the bridegroom. Now, in modern, modern parlance, one could describe these ten virgins really as ten bridesmaids, According to commentators, the description of virgin is actually meant to indicate that they are women of marriageable age and are therefore intimately connected to the bride. New Testament scholar Craig Keener gives helpful historical context for understanding the customs of the ancient Near Eastern weddings in Jesus' day. He says that it was customary for the bridesmaids to bear lamps, or more literally torches, to light the festive processional from the bride's home to the home of the groom, where there would be a wedding feast. The bridesmaid would therefore wait at the bride's home for the bridegroom to come, and then they would accompany the bride and the groom to their new home in a festive ceremony which occurred at night, which is why they needed lamps or torches. So they're, they're waiting there at the bride's house. They're waiting for the, for the bridegroom to come. And uh, they hear that the, bride, the bridegroom is coming, so they go. However, immediately Jesus describes a foreboding tension in the story. Of the ten bridesmaids who go to meet the bridegroom, five of them foolishly neglect to bring any oil to sustain the flame of their lamp, while the other five wisely bring oil for their lamps. Now, in a traditional Palestinian Arab wedding, the bridegroom would often be delayed for hours. This is because, likely, the bride's parents often haggled over the value of gifts given to them in order to emphasize the importance of the bride. I myself experienced this. I'm married to um, a woman who is, she's born here, uh, Mary, who, uh, her parents are Nigerian, and we had a Nigerian wedding, and one of the ceremonies, one of the things that I had to do was, there was a bridal price, and I had to bring gifts to the parents, and the, the elders were there, and they said, okay, Rodney, Um, We're just going to enter into kind of a a ceremony. Don't take it personally. And then they became really mean. (laughs) And they were like, what did you, this is, 
this does not have any value. Like, they, like everything I brought, they were saying that it was cheap and worthless. <laughs> and I was trying to defend myself. Like, I mean, uh, you know, this is the best I can do. <laughs> and it went on for a very long time. Um, this is perhaps a small example of what might have been happened. But, but for whatever reason, bridegrooms didn't immediately come to the bride's house and take her away to his home. So um, these delays were common enough that any sensible person would expect the possibility that more oil would be needed to keep the flame lit and not spoil the wedding proceeding for the bride and the groom. They should have expected, okay, this might take some time, so we're going to need some oil to keep our flames lit so that when they come, we have burning lamps and the, the procession isn't completely ruined. Still, all the bridesmaids went out to meet the groom with burning lamps as they expected he might come to them sooner rather than later. However, the story takes a turn in verse 5. Verse 5, you look at it, Jesus says, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So the bridegroom is delayed, and the bridesmaids start to get really tired to the point of falling asleep. Now, at this point in the parable, Jesus describes the wise bridesmaids, the wise virgins, as falling asleep along with the foolish ones. So sleep itself in this parable cannot be a negative thing, right? It, it actually is expected that such a thing would happen. This was very late at night. And so because of the fact that it was very late at night and the delay could happen, that's why it would have been wise to, to be bringing oil uh, in case one's lamp started to go out. The story then hits that turning point in verses 6 through 7. Uh, look down with me there. Jesus says, But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Trimming, trimming their lamps meaning preparing their lamps. Now, the virgin bridesmaids are awakened by a call in the dead of night to come out and meet the bridegroom. Now, this part of the story might be very relatable to some of us. Imagine the feeling, for instance, of being on a long Amtrak journey in the middle of the night. And suddenly the lights come on and the conductor starts talking, uh, saying, you know, announcing your arrival at your location. You suddenly jump up and wipe the sleep off of your eyes and start scrambling to grab your iPhone and your charger and your bags and everything else to get off the train before it leaves for its next destination. This is similar to the situation of the ten virgins. They suddenly wake up and realize that they need to immediately get ready for the processional since the bridegroom is approaching. So they start quickly prepping their lamps for the celebration. However, at this point in the story, there is a crisis. Let's read about that crisis in verses 8 through 10. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So the folly of the unprepared bridesmaids is exposed at this point in the story. When they wake up and finally see that the bridegroom is about to come, they look at their lamps, and their lamps are going out. Now, etiquette was very important in these weddings, and a bridesmaid could not participate in the processional 
if they didn't have a lamp, a torch. It would be like a bridesmaid showing up to their friend's wedding with jeans and a t-shirt when the rest of the bridesmaids are already dressed up with the appropriate attire. And so when they realize this, they foolishly ask for the oil from the wise bridesmaids. But the wise bridesmaids can't give them any since they wouldn't have enough for themselves and everyone would be in the dark and the processional would be ruined. So the wise virgins counsel the foolish virgins to go do what they should have done in the beginning, buy oil for themselves to sustain the light of their lamp. However, when they go to try and get oil from the market, the bridegroom comes, the procession occurs, and the door is shut to the wedding feast. Once again, I can somewhat empathize with how the foolish bridesmaids must have felt, given my experience with Amtrak. For anyone who has traveled with Amtrak, you know that when the doors are shut and the train starts moving, there's no way you're getting off the train. Vice versa is the same as well. If you're late for the train and the door shuts itself, there's no way you're stopping that train to get on it. Believe me, I remember rushing to the door of an Amtrak train with all my bags only to see the door slowly shut in my face and the train start to slowly move on. And at that moment, it, it was a bit shocking, but I knew there's no way I'm going to change the situation. I'm late. And so it was for the foolish virgins. But there are some of us who, because of desperation, we try to change a situation that can't be changed. Desperation can do that to a person. We see that with the foolish virgins. They are so desperate to get into the feast that they start calling out to the bridegroom from outside in verse 11. Lord, Lord, open to us. And yet look at the bridegroom's response in verse 12. He says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now those words are startling, in the context, it could describe the bridegroom's choice to disown the bridesmaids who had insulted him and his bride and their relatives by not showing up to the processional with their lamps. This would have been the social penalty for these young women who thoughtlessly came unprepared to the wedding for their supposed friends and now are seeking to enjoy the festivities of the wedding. In a sense, these bridesmaids cared more about enjoying the feast than they did about the couple that the feast was celebrating. And so with the end of this parable, we see Christ's closing exhortation. What is it? In this exhortation, he gives us the central point of the story. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, the word which is translated watch in verse 13 is more literally rendered from the Greek as stay awake. So this might seem ironic since the wise virgins fell asleep along with the foolish virgins, but this command to stay awake is best seen as a metaphor for being prepared, since sleep is a symbol for being unprepared. So this closing exhortation brings us to now consider the deeper meaning and symbolism of the parable. What does this all mean? Why did Jesus tell this story? Now, again, there are two dangers in interpreting a parable. One danger is that you overinterpret it, right? You try to find a direct parallel and symbol for every single thing in the, in the, in the parable. Uh, the other danger is that uh, you underinterpret it. 
where you're too cautious and you fail to grasp the symbols and the meaning that Jesus intended for you to catch on to in the story. One way to begin with interpreting a parable, however, is to find the main point if Jesus gives it to you. And we're blessed that Jesus actually gives us the main point of the parable by using the word therefore at the very end in verse 13. That word therefore is important because Jesus is saying that the entire story is meant for you to do something. Namely, to watch or to be prepared for his coming because you do not know when it will happen and there will be a delay. Jesus is therefore saying to everyone, I will come to earth unexpectedly, prepare to meet me. Given the context of the passage, the central point of the parable could be summarized like this, as we mentioned before. Christ's coming will be delayed and unexpected, so always be prepared to meet him. And so the rest of this sermon will cover these two points. First, Christ's coming will be delayed and unexpected. And second, always be prepared to meet him. And my aim is for you to see how these points are being illustrated in the parable and how you can practically respond to what Jesus is saying here. So first, let's consider the first point. Christ's coming will be delayed and unexpected. Now in the parable, we see even through, even though all the bridesmaids go out to meet the bridegroom, only five are prepared to go with him. And this is because there is an unexpected delay. If the bridegroom came when they were all expecting him to come at the start, they would have all been ready. However, there was a delay and then a startling and sudden midnight cry that he's there. Wake up and meet him. Now, I hope it's clear to you that the bridegroom represents Christ. Given the context, it's quite clear that Christ is the bridegroom. For instance, in Matthew 9, 15, earlier on in in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus again uses wedding imagery to refer to himself as a bridegroom, a bridegroom and his disciples as wedding guests, closely mirroring the imagery of this parable. In fact, all throughout scripture, such as in Isaiah 62, which we read earlier, or in Revelation 21, God and his son are referred to as a bridegroom and his people are referred to as the bride. The bride can be described either as his people and sometimes as Jerusalem, the city which will be the new uh, home for his people. And so Jesus Christ is saying he will come as a bridegroom comes for his bride and bring the bride and all the wedding guests to the wedding feast. The imagery of a wedding feast or a banquet is used throughout Matthew and all of scripture as a reference to the final glorious celebration when the kingdom of heaven appears on earth. Our brother and pastor Tim Garber made reference to this a few weeks ago when he preached on the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, where the coming kingdom of God is compared to a grand wedding feast that God gives for his son. So the parable's narrative regarding a coming bridegroom represents the fact that Jesus is returning like a bridegroom, and with his return he will bring his people, his bride, into the kingdom of heaven, which he referenced at the very start of this parable. Elsewhere in scripture, this great event of Christ's return is described as being cosmic and universal in scope. Jesus Christ will one day at a time that we do not expect descend from heaven and appear in the sky with power and great glory 
and the entire created universe will be renovated with fire and glorified in perfection so that the followers of Jesus Christ can rule and reign over it in ever-increasing joy and bliss forever and ever as they see their beloved Christ face-to-face and commune with him and with one another forever in perfect holiness and love and in glorious bodies which will shine like the sun and never grow old or weary, the joy and the greatness and the splendor and the beauty and the glory of this coming kingdom is anything beyond our imagination. It's beyond anything we can imagine. And it will come with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the King, who will finally return to set up his kingdom. However, the coming King, the Bridegroom, said that his coming will be delayed and that when he does finally come, it will shock the entire world. Jesus says this in chapter 24, verse 44. He says, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You can therefore bank on this. You, along with the entire earth, will be surprised when the Son of Man appears. You will not be able to calculate it. You will not be able to anticipate it. It will be at an hour and on a day that you do not expect. This is what sleep represents in the parable. Just as the virgins go to sleep after their initial expectation to meet the bridegroom, all of us, both the wise and the unwise, are destined to go about our daily lives as we plan for dinner and wash our cars and brush our teeth and go to work. These are not bad things. These are all things necessary to live life. However, it will be during the course of these ordinary events when none of us are expecting for our entire existence to change. It is then that God will suddenly interrupt the world with a midnight trumpet announcing the arrival of his son to earth. For genuine followers of Jesus Christ, this sudden coming will be a shock of great joy and satisfaction. While for those who are not ready, for those who do not truly know and follow Jesus Christ, this will be a shock of utter horror and deep sorrow. Jesus compares his coming in 24, 37 through 42 to the time of the flood when Noah faithfully built an ark and all the people around him went about their daily lives, enjoying themselves, going to weddings, eating and drinking, and probably thinking Noah was insane for building an ark when it wasn't raining. But when the floodwaters came, everyone perished. And in the same way, when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, many people from all nations will be shut out of it. They will be taken away, exiled into a place of weeping, darkness, fire, and never-ending torment and regret. Christ will set up his throne in a final judgment And those who are not ready for this judgment will be sentenced to eternal fire, eternal exile from this wonderful new creation into a dark prison of fire and sulfur where the worm does not die and where the fire is never quenched. This is hell. And this is why the stakes are so high and why we should listen to Jesus when he says, be prepared because I am coming when you do not Expect it. 
And so let's now turn to the second point of the parable. Always be ready to meet Christ. How can we prepare? What does that mean? What does it mean to always be ready for Christ? What does it actually mean to be ready to meet him? And how can I do it? How can we do it? Well, let's look at these two questions with the time we have left. First, what does it mean to be always prepared to meet Christ? What does readiness look like? Well, Christ gives us some helpful imagery in the parable. He describes the readiness of the virgins in terms of them having lamps that are shining. The key is not for the virgins to have lamps, but to have lamps that are shining. It was those with the shining, the burning lamps that were considered ready to process with the bridegroom to the wedding feast. And while oil was necessary for their lamps to keep shining, it was the shining itself that constituted the readiness. We know this because if the bridegroom had come at the very beginning when they all had lamps that were shining, all of them would have been ready and went into the feast. So in the parable, to be always ready is to have lamps which are always burning, since it is a shining lamp that qualified the virgins to join the bridegroom and to not be shut out. But what does this mean? What does this imagery actually point to practically? Now, I want to argue for something and then kind of show you in the text and in Scripture why that's the case. And I would say that the shining lamp represents a living faith. The light represents the obedience of faith, the fruit of holiness. In order to see this, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But understand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that his followers are not mere lamps, lampstands, but shining lamps. And the light which shines from his followers are the light of their good works. That is, the light of their obedience to God. Jesus, the master teacher, gives various metaphors and pictures to help us get this point. Obedience to him matters. Not as the basis of our salvation, but as the necessary evidence of it. Consider verse 20 of the same chapter. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the righteousness of the Pharisees? According to Christ in Matthew 23, 23 through 28, it is merely formal and external righteousness. It's hypocritical. It neglects the weighty matters of the law regarding love for God and love for neighbor. These are those who Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3.5 who have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
meaning they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They deny the power of faith to actually change their lives. They continue living in their sin while hypocritically claiming to know God, claiming to be Christians. Jesus gives different images to describe this type of hypocrisy and formalism. Think of what he said at the end of of the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier. Notice what he says in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, which we read earlier. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Jesus says it is those who do the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet there are many people who may have done many religious works and and done powerful and awe-inspiring things for the sake of the kingdom, but they may have completely neglected to live according to the basic commands that Jesus gave them in his word regarding holiness. These are those who might emphatically declare Jesus Christ to be Lord, Lord, but he will say to them, I never knew you. Now, where is this found elsewhere in Matthew? It's actually found in our passage, right? At the very end in verses 11 through 12, when the foolish virgins, 11 through 12 of chapter 25, the foolish virgins standing outside the wedding feast use the same words to address the bridegroom. They call out, Lord, Lord, open to us. And yet the bridegroom responds, I don't know you. Now, Jesus is clearly trying to allude to the Sermon on the Mount here because the virgins would not have called any bridegroom, Lord, Lord. Jesus is trying to show this is a story and it's pointing to something beyond the story. The parable of the ten virgins, therefore, cannot be interpreted properly without the background of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the key. It is not those who take up the lamp who will go with the bridegroom, but those who have lamps shining with the light of obedience when the bridegroom returns. A true Christian is identified not merely by the formality of professing Christ. A Christian is not merely identified by even baptism or church attendance or a profession of faith in Jesus Christ or the fact that you say you're a Christian on Twitter or that you have many Christian friends or you hang out with other Christians. The foolish virgins were just with the wise virgins. They were around. They were probably indistinguishable at the time. The mark of a true believer, as we will see shortly, is that they walk in ever-growing faith and repentance and obedience to the commands of their Lord as laid out for him, as laid out for them in his word. In a word then, it is holiness which marks the true believer. Not a perfect holiness, but a real and growing holiness, a basic and necessary holiness without which none shall see the Lord, as Hebrews 12, 14 says. The Apostle Paul describes this necessary holiness in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, 
orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul here is simply echoing the teaching of Jesus himself, that those who truly know the Lord will depart from iniquity and there will be light in their lives. So using the imagery of Jesus himself, trees without fruit will be burned, fields without crops will be rejected, salt without saltiness will be trampled underfoot, and professing Christians without holiness will one day be exposed. And so to be always ready to meet Christ is to never let the flame, the light of holiness go out in your life because there will be a delay and this delay will challenge the flame of your obedience to God. This is because the time of delay which we now live in will be filled with what Christ mentions in chapter 24. War, calamities, deception, persecution, and lawlessness. Jesus says in chapter 24, 12 through 13, that because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When Jesus says this, he's referring to the love of many professing Christians. The flame of their love of God and neighbor will grow cold as a result of the abundant lawlessness that will be rampant during the time before Christ's coming. But the one who endures to the end in love, who endures in holiness, who endures in repentance and faith, will be saved. The true Christian must love the Lord Jesus not simply to escape judgment, but they must treasure him for who he is. We must not be like the foolish virgins who, because of their lack of care for the couple, neglected to prepare for the procession, and yet still wanted to go into the wedding feast. And so I ask you, are you ready? Is your lamp defective or is it shining? Are you walking in the darkness of sin, thinking that you can put off repentance until later on? Well, be warned. This is not what it means to be ready to meet Christ. Yet the question still remains, where does this enduring holiness come from? How can I get it? Maybe you're here and you hear these things and you want to know. How can I keep my light burning? It is here where we turn to our final point. How can we be prepared to meet Christ, the bridegroom? How can we lay hold of the holiness without which none shall see the Lord? Now in the parable, the central problem, the central problem is that the foolish virgins had lamps that went out. But the root of that problem is actually in verse 3, where Jesus describes from the very beginning that the five virgins, as foolish as they were, did not take oil with their lamps, like the other virgins. Here's the key. They did not make provision for their flames to endure in light of the bridegroom's delay. And so the lesson of the parable is to take oil for your lamps now in light of the delayed and unexpected coming of the bridegroom. This is therefore Christ's instruction regarding how you can always be prepared for his coming. You must make provision to keep your lamp burning throughout the delay. You must take oil for your lamps. Now, many scholars and commentators have debated what this oil represents. But at the most basic level, the oil has to represent whatever is needed to keep the light of your holiness shining 
before Christ's return. And we know from Matthew and from elsewhere in Scripture that this is the grace of God's Spirit. Throughout the Scriptures, oil is an apt metaphor for the Spirit of God. In fact, the very word Christ actually means anointed one. And what do you anoint someone with? Oil. The kings of Israel were anointed with oil. However, this anointing in Christ's case is actually an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And because Christ has been anointed with the fullness of the Spirit, he can continuously supply the Spirit like oil to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. In Acts 2, Peter makes this plain during the festival of Pentecost after Christ is risen from the dead and ascends to heaven. Peter quotes the prophet of Joel. He says that in the last days, God would graciously pour out his spirit on all flesh. When the surrounding crowds asked what they must do in light of all that he said, he says, repent and be baptized, and in doing so you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul confirms this when he says in Ephesians 1.13 and Galatians 3.2 that believers receive the spirit through faith in the gospel. And so if you are to be prepared for Christ's return, if you are to walk in the holiness without which none shall see God, you must simply repent and believe the gospel. This means you must turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. This bridegroom, this mighty king, has done something for you and for everyone, and he wants all nations to hear of it. He Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the light of the world, became a human being and lived the perfect, holy life that you and I should have lived. He never once shifted from perfectly obeying the will of the Father. He was perfectly good, perfectly righteous. And then out of a love beyond imagination, he voluntarily gave himself over to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He died under the wrath of God as he was crucified and slaughtered, bearing the penalty that you and I deserve for rebelling against a holy God. After this, he was buried. But on the third day, he was raised from death in glory, and he ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will return one day soon to judge the living and the dead and to set up his everlasting kingdom. And this Jesus calls you to himself now. He calls you to come without delay, to come to the wedding feast, to come to his kingdom, to leave your sins and trust in him and in his sacrifice so that your sins can be forgiven by his blood and so that you can receive the power and grace of his spirit to be born again and to shine with his righteousness and holiness until he returns. So what prevents you from doing this? Why would you delay a second more? If you're not a Christian and you're hearing this sermon, it's because the God of the universe wants you to turn from your sin and trust in his son, that you might be forgiven of all your sins forever and empowered to live a new life of joy, love, holiness, so that you might be fully prepared to meet the son when he comes. So come. Come to Christ. There's no price tag on the grace of God. It is free, free and abundant for all who would have it. As the old hymn says, all the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him.
If you'd like to know more about what this means, please feel free to speak with me or any of the members here. We would love to talk with you about what it means to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who have repented and placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this parable was given to remind us of the need to not only repent and believe the gospel, but to continue repenting and to continue believing the gospel, to endure in holiness. And how do we do this? We do it by laying hold of the means of grace that God has laid out in his word. Prayer, the study of scripture, active membership in a local church, fellowship with other believers, fasting, singing, partaking of the Lord's Supper. All of these are ordinary means for us to nourish our faith for endurance and to maintain holiness in our lives. Think of Christ's own words, for example, in Matthew 18. He speaks of the local church as a means for preserving the holiness of his people. Many of us think only of the verses on excommunication at the end of that passage, but what about the brother who's actually restored at the very beginning? Right? There's many iterations, there's many things that happen before excommunication. Through loving confrontation with fellow believers, we who might be veering off into sin can be restored. Think also of this passage in Hebrews 3.12. It says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we continue and hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so the writer to the Hebrews goes on in chapter 10 to exhort believers to not neglect to meet together, but to stir one another up in good works and encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the day of the bridegroom's return. We, we exist in a local church to encourage one another. We are oil for each other to keep our flames burning until the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes. In verse 36 of Hebrews uh, 3, he says that believers have need of endurance so that after we have done the will of God, I'm sorry, verse 36 of chapter 10, so that after we have done the will of God, we may receive what is promised. That is, the promised kingdom which God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Believer, are you taking advantage of everything you will need to endure until that time? The world is filled with threats to our faith, and many who thought that they knew the Lord have left him. Even more frightening, many have left the Lord without knowing it. There is a slow, silent apostasy that can overtake any of us, if we are not careful, as we continue professing Christ, but slowly begin to reject him by the way we live. Sin is truly deceitful, and its desire is to destroy your holiness, snuff out your lamp, and make a mockery of the profession of allegiance you once made to the Lord Jesus Christ. So please hear me. You will not survive in this world given all that is happening, if you do not belong to a gospel-preaching church, if you do not pray 
If you do not seek to learn the word of God in order to escape the snares of deception and false teaching around us, these means of grace will give you oil. But if you refuse, like the foolish virgins, to make use of these things, then be warned that your flame may soon go out and there may not be any time to restore a faith and a love that has grown cold when the Lord Jesus Christ descends from heaven and calls you to the great and majestic judgment at the end of the age. So Christ urges you, be prepared to meet him at all times because he is coming at a time that you do not expect. Let's pray. Lord, may we be careful to prepare ourselves for your coming. Help us, Lord, for the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. In Jesus' name, amen.